What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Y'all, I have been absolutely fascinated, if if not also equally a little disgusted, uh, at, at what I guess we could call a recall movement that seems to be sweeping not just the state but the country. And what I mean by that is after... Uh, a seeming wave of campaigns that come after election campaigns when one side is mad that they lost and instead of just dealing with the next four years or so of that candidate's policies, there's an immediate suggestion of, and in many cases now across the country, the actual implementation of recall campaigns. And not recall campaigns based like on the merits of how the elected is or is not doing their jobs, but recall campaigns rooted in extremism and misinformation, disinformation campaigns. You all often hear me say we cannot adequately organize in the present if we don't understand our past. So I got curious about the origins, history, and intentions of recalls in the United States. And here to discuss is Catherine Olmsted, a history professor at UC Davis, who studies anti-communist efforts and the roots of modern conservatism. She is the author of four books with her most recent titled Right Out of California, the 1930s and the Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism. Catherine has also been published in the New York Times discussing the recall effort against Gavin Newsom in 2021. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Catherine, take us back in time prior to 1911 and describe the political landscape where the Southern Pacific Railroad had an undue influence on some politicians across the state. Yes. Yeah, so in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, in California and also in many other states, uh, as a result of industrialization, there was a great concentration of wealth. And remember, this is before the income tax. Uh, and so there were very wealthy uh, individuals and corporations that wanted to make sure that they continued to not have to pay taxes or to be regulated by the government. And so they had a lot of influence over the national government, but especially over state legislatures. This was uh, before the direct election of senators, so state legislatures could elect the, the U.S. Senate. And uh, so the, the wealthy individuals and corporations wanted to control the election of senators. They wanted to control the state legislature to make sure that they were not regulated or, or taxed and that their workers' rights were not protected. And so there was a progressive movement to oppose that. And one of the solutions that they came up with was the recall and the idea that um, you could threaten or actually carry out a recall of an elected official in the middle or even the beginning of their term so that they would be more responsive to the needs of the people rather than uh, rich people and, and businesses. And what what is the history of, of successful or, or lack thereof uh, success in terms of recall efforts in the state of California since that time? Well, at the state level, there haven't been that many. Uh, it was used a few times in the 1910s against state legislat- legislators um, successfully. Uh, and then there was a long period when it wasn't used at all. And then it was sort of dusted off in the 1970s. And as politics became more polarized, it was started to be used successfully against a couple of legislators in the 1990s and then famously against um, Governor Gray Davis in 2003. And then most recently, it's been used against a couple of legislators and then against uh, Governor Newsom uh, in 2021. 
Now, right. at the local and, level, there have uh, been many more attempts. Um, the, it depends on the city, but in Los Angeles in particular, it's, it was used a lot over time uh, when mayor was successfully recalled in 1938. Um, and, of course, recently in the Bay Area, it's been used quite frequently. I actually wanted to go back a, a minute, sorry. Uh, in 1911, uh, when Governor Hiram Johnson pushed through right the, the recall, um, as well as um, the referendum and the ballot initiative, what was the reaction of the, the elite, the, the conservatives that had the stranglehold on politics uh, prior? Well, they were they were displeased because it made it harder for them to control the state legislature in particular, um, and also the local bosses uh, at the uh, city uh, level were displeased because um, now they were threatened with uh, losing their their power over local and state government. What do you think that the initial proponents of the recall at that time would think about how it's being utilized now? Oh, I think they'd be horrified um, because it's being used exactly uh, in the opposite way that they intended. Um, They wanted it to be the voice of the people against the interests. Uh, And now just the way politics has evolved and extreme partisanship and the amount of money that's involved and professional signature gatherers, uh, it is now used to, um, as a conservative tool to gum up the works of of government and uh, make it harder for public officials to do their jobs. Now, not all states uh, have recall powers, and they they sort of look different, right, from state to state. Walk us through the mechanisms of the California recall. Where does it it have rigor or or not, and and how does that compare to other places in the country? Well, it is easier in California to recall uh, state officials uh, that you have to get 12% 12% signatures of 12% of the voters in the last uh, gubernatorial election uh, in order to proceed. Uh, that's the lowest uh, that anyone has. There are states that require as many as 40% of the, of the voters to sign a petition in order to get a recall. Um, and in California, you don't have to have a, a reason. Uh, you can just... Um, uh, decide that you don't like someone's policies. You can't. Uh, you don't have to go before a judge and say, "I think this person is corrupt, and I have this uh, evidence." Can just be entirely political. So the bar is quite low in California. And can you talk about that low bar actually being uh, an element that that almost took Governor Gavin Newsom out in twenty twenty one? Yes. Well, uh, the Republican Party could not win the governorship uh, in 2018, and it has very little chance of doing so in the near future because uh, Newsom won in 2018 with 62% of the vote. Uh, Biden got 64% of the vote in 2020 in California, so it's a heavily Democratic state. And so what some Republican leaders figured out in the recall attempt in 2021 was that maybe this is a way they could uh, get the governorship because Newsom at that time uh, was quite unpopular with conservatives for the mass mandate and um, 
having, uh, you know, vaccine mandates and school closings, but also with liberals who considered him, you know, not very far left. So he didn't really have um, an obvious base or a lot of enthusiasm. And so they thought if they had a, a special election where that's the only thing on the ballot, um, that, uh, you know, he could get recalled and then he would be replaced by uh, the Republican on the ballot with uh, who got the highest number of votes, who would in turn be uh, much less popular than Newsom, but could get in through this mechanism. So it was like a, a, what they thought was a clever strategy to grab hold of the governorship in a democratic state. Of course, it didn't work, but there's always the possibility that it could in the future. Yeah, I mean, I remember the news article, well, clearly we were covering that, right, on these airwaves, and, and there were polls, you know, at, at certain points where we were like, uh, maybe we're going to be talking about Governor Elder, um, but yeah. that that is not uh, how it played out. Catherine Olmsted, I've been hearing people, you know, talk in the wave of, of all of recall madness, I guess I'm going to call it, um, I've heard people calling for recall reform. What would recall reform in California look like, and what is the process to get there? Well, uh, there was a state commission that came out with some recommendations about a year ago, uh, and their main suggestion was that you increase the number of of signatures that are required, um, and instead of having 12% of the number of voters in the last uh, election, have 10% of registered voters which in California would be, uh, you know, more than 2 million signatures that you'd need. So uh, it would be uh, harder to get a recall on the ballot. You would truly have to have uh, grassroots support, uh, widespread grassroots support for a recall. Um, And then they're also suggesting a a snap election in which the, the... target of the recall would be on the ballot as well as the um, the candidates of the other party. So it would be possible, for example, to, um, to be unhappy with Newsom but still vote for him um, to succeed himself. Um, mm. And so I think those, those reforms would be very good. They don't seem to have gone anywhere, though. The report came out about a year ago, and I haven't heard any of any action on it. Um, and, uh, you know, at the, at the local level, it would be up to the individual cities to reform their charters, their mechanisms for uh, recalls. When you look at the, the, how, how the recall is playing out currently, I, as I was prepping for our conversation, I saw a term either that you used or the reporter that was interviewing you used called partisan polarization. What does that mean and how is it fueling current recall campaigns? Well, what that means is that uh, when as political scientists study uh, votes in legislatures and in the Congress, they see the number of times that Republicans and Democrats vote the same way. And for a long time in mid-20th century America, there was a lot of partisan, bipartisan cooperation, bipartisan agreement. A lot of bills were, and policies were supported by both parties. And that started to change in the 1970s, and it's just accelerated over time. And now we are back at the point that we were really early in the 20th century when there's very, very few votes uh, in Congress where you have Democrats and Republicans agreeing. Um, It has come almost full circle. If you look at 
partisan polarization from 1900 to the present. It's like a U-shaped curve where there was a, a lot of um, polarization at the beginning of the 20th century. Then it dipped, and now it's back. Um, and what that means is that there's very little cooperation between members of the parties, leaders of the parties, and that uh, even like grassroots members of the parties tend to really distrust the other party. And uh, so, for example, in the Newsom uh, recall effort, there were a lot of Republicans, especially in rural counties in California, who you know truly believed that Newsom was not just someone whose policies they disagreed with, but somebody who was actively you know destroying California, who was uh, um, uh, going to undermine. California government and everything that was good about it. They had lots of conspiracy theories about him. And so as a result, they're highly motivated to try and figure out ways to get him out of office and not just to wait for his term to be up and and oppose him then, but to try to uh, get him out of office immediately, which is why they turned to the recall. Kathleen, I'm I'm going to ask you a big question, and I know it's a, it's a big question, but I'm asking from you know your purview. You talk about this being you know a U-shaped. How did we get here? Are like other significant events like if you were to you know like put dots on that on that U-shaped timeline? Would you know this happened? This happened? This happened? And then said I told you it was a big question. So and then. What do you see as the pathway back? I mean, my guess that that pathway lies in the power of the people, hence organizing. But I would love to hear what you think. Right. Well, I would say, uh, you know, as a historian, I would tend to go back a few decades and say, really, you have to look at the 1960s. You have to look at the civil rights movement. And a lot of uh, Southern conservatives were in the Democratic Party still in the 1960s, and they left the Democrats over the Democratic Party support of the civil rights movement. Um, You also have to look at the Vietnam War. There were a lot of conservative Democrats who left the party uh, because they opposed uh, the peace faction in the Democratic Party. Um, And so those would be the two big events. And then there's just increasing um, distance between liberals and conservatives on the welfare state, on regulation, on taxation, and the parties are starting to, you know, become more ideologically distinct. and this trend has only accelerated over time. So, I mean, that's like the big picture historically as far as how do we get back. I mean, I would say absolutely one of the most important things is for everyone to be involved and engaged in politics and to organize so that their voices are heard. I think part of uh, the problem with politics can be that people get um, cynical and alienated and decide, well, you know, the interests control everything, and so therefore I shouldn't bother to vote or to to, to work in politics. And, and that's, um, you know, the, exactly the opposite of what we need right now. We need people not to be cynical, but um, skeptical but not cynical, and uh, to, to get engaged in politics. 
I hear you. I mean, my, my personal political belief is that we're not going to get liberated at the ballot box. And because that's the paradigm that we're living in, right, that, that engaging in electoral politics can provide some immediate relief uh, for the people while we work to dismantle this thing and build something else. That said, I'll just say it's not necessarily right asking for commentary, but it, it is it is a little hard, I think, for black folks in this country to not be cynical. Right, with both parties, especially when we look at the last election cycle where they capitalized off of our rage during the 2020 rebellions and we're talking about divesting from law enforcement, et cetera, only to turn around and move along with the Republicans uh, uh, on a law and order platform of which I expect more to come as we enter into this next presidential season. Hmm. Yeah, those are all good points. (laughs) Catherine Olmsted, I want to thank you for joining us this morning and giving us a little uh, history on the recall. It's something that we're going to be covering on this show um, uh, a little bit. So hopefully we will be able to get you back on the airwaves. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Catherine Olmsted is a history professor at UC Davis who studies anti-communist efforts and the roots of modern conservatism. She is the author of four books, with her most recent titled Right Out of California, the 1930s and the Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism. Catherine has also been published in the New York Times discussing the recall effort against Gavin Newsom in 2021. And that takes us to 8.25 in the morning here on Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're going to turn our attention now to some recent recall campaigns and ones that Maybe on the horizon, we are joined by Joshua Spivak, the author of Recall Elections from Alexander Hamilton to Gavin Newsom. Joshua tracks recall efforts globally on his blog, recallelections.blogspot.com. Good morning, Joshua. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for, for joining us and for being someone who I was on your your blog who painstakingly uh, covers uh, recalls uh, across the country. Joshua, I, I would just love to get your reflections on this current moment that we're sitting in. I mean, is it just me or is there a recall movement afoot in this country? And if you could talk about, you know, nationally, but then put California in there, you know, like how are we comparing uh, to the rest of the country in these efforts? Well, you know, it's not that clear because there aren't too many great numbers from the past. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've actually seen less recalls in recent years than in 2011 and 12 when it really kind of blew up uh, in Wisconsin and took the nation by storm. Um, We did see quite a number of efforts during COVID. So COVID was, was the first time in all the years that I've seen recalls that there was a national um, subject matter that people were facing recalls over, masking policy, uh, vaccine vaccination policy, and that resulted in many attempts, but almost no removals uh, over those subjects. And uh, the big place that we saw that was in school board efforts. There were like 250 school board members who faced recall efforts, but only 17 got on the ballot and only one lost throughout the whole country. Uh, so it wasn't really successful, but it was a good way for people to kind of express their anger. And it wasn't a, what was interesting, very interesting for people into politics is it didn't seem to be a uh, binary blue v red fight. It was in Republican areas that you saw these recall efforts in Idaho. And still the voters supported the elected officials in their 
changes to the policy. So there hasn't been necessarily an explosion, but whenever you're a part of it, you certainly feel it. Yeah, I guess it's because I live in the the Bay Area. I've been feeling it uh, just a bit. I want to stick with the role that that COVID plays has played in in some some of the increase um, in in talk of recall efforts. Um, I was just talking to our last guest, Catherine Olmsted, and she was talking about the role that partisan polarization plays in recall surges of recall campaigns. And I'm wondering if you can talk about COVID inside of that paradigm. Well, so, you know, it's not so partisan of an issue, generally, a recall, because recalls are on the local level, for the most part. Um, And generally, most localities are one party dominated or another. Uh, Most states are that also. So there, it's usually a very policy based issue that results in a recall. And so COVID saw that, but it wasn't you know, a Republican versus a Democrat, it was rather two Republicans facing it. Similarly, we saw this in the school board and the DA races, both in in LA, in San Francisco, where we saw a recall, and in LA, where there was a serious recall attempt that did not get to the ballot. While there was a, you know, there was a tinge, it was not necessarily Democrat versus Republican. It was because the the people who were placing the candidates were going to be Democrats. So it had somewhat of a different feel to it. Uh, And then, you know, on on that same vein, because of COVID, there's this one other topic that we're now seeing, and it's a national issue uh, facing the growth of progressive uh, progressive prosecutors. So you saw with the San Francisco DA, with the LADA, um, that there were attempts to recall the officials because of changes in in the process for uh, of how the DA would operate. However, again, not necessarily Democrat versus Republican so much as a Really? I'm sorry to interrupt you, Joshua, but I, I have sure. to, especially talking about the San Francisco DA. I'm going to push just a little bit, and I, I really do want your thoughts, right? If you look sure. at who funded the recall of Chesa Boudin, they were right-wing Republican millionaires. Those are just facts. You can look and see who was filling the coffers. And then, uh, hold on, I'm I'm almost done, and then I'm going to let you respond. And then, no, 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 you're fine. I like like heated conversations. It's all good. Um, And and then, yeah, I mean, I guess I I feel you that Brooke Jenkins probably ticks the Democrat box when she she goes to vote. Yeah, I think I'm going to conjure up, you know, one of my ancestors, Malcolm X, and, and say she's more of a Dixiecrat than a Democrat. I don't care what the color of her skin is and the policies that she is enacting are certainly right wing in nature. So right wing versus Democrat versus Republican. So uh, the the people who were voting for her, the person who replaced her, the person who made the choice to replace her were Democrats. If it was a Democrat versus Republican fight, then would Boudin have lost? If there was the feeling that the person who was replacing Boudin and the people replacing the school board members were right-wing Republicans, you know, like from Alabama, say, would they have lost? So it would have been, you know, think about it in that fashion. Uh, So the policy is different, but in terms of the partisanship, it is contained within that one party. Yes, the money, you know, clearly there was backing from Republicans, but from a policy point of view, uh, from a partisan point of view, it doesn't have that same 
massive change in party control, which matters a lot. Now, compare that. And this does is it, does it matter to the folks on the ground that are feeling the impact? Does it matter? Well, well, compare it to Philadelphia and compare it to Hillsborough, Florida. Right. So in those two states, in those two places, they've had DAs facing attempts for removal. Right. Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. And the attempt is an impeachment. And in Hillsborough, um, the governor removed the state's attorney. Right. There was no voter support. There was no voter position. And there it feels like a very, very political event in a way that was, is less about policy and therefore it doesn't have any support. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Uh, okay, you know, I'm going to make one more push. Whole, yeah. I'm going to make one sure. more push. Well, I can't promise it'll be the last one. I got you for another 10 minutes or so. But the okay, next push yeah, is so um, <laughs> the next push is right. You, you're talking about it being policy issues. If you scroll through, and I want to move on to some other campaigns and not just talk about Chesa, but of course, that's the one that has made me the angriest <laughs> thus far. Um, if you look at the headlines in the San Francisco Chronicle, if you look at the materials that the campaigner recalled Chesa Boudin utilized, most of what they said wasn't true. They weren't actual policies. In fact, a lot of the things that they blamed Chester for, he had absolutely no control over. So policy in, in Wolf's clothing, poly, like I, how do you talk about the misinformation and disinformation campaigns that have influenced some of these recall elections, including the San Francisco School Board? Well, well that's an election. Really, that's what an election is like, right? You know, we, we see that all the time with elections. But, you know, my point is simply that it's the, the question of partisanship in these things. So the the governor's race was very partisan. The Scott okay. Walker recall, very partisan, right? It was do the Republicans okay. rule or the, do the Democrats rule? In this case, it is very much an internal fight. And there's this internal battle going on about the role of prosecutors, right? This is it, it's one of the most fascinating political subjects over the last few years from a local level, right? That how how there's been this change that obviously you know you probably know quite a bit more about me than I do. Um, but this this fascinating fight over what is the role of a prosecutor in uh, in the American political system and in the American legal system. And so the fact that it results in heated political debate and something like a recall is maybe not a surprise because it is a major change in how we're operating. And so once you have that, and similarly to, similar to COVID, where there was a major change in policy, there's a result, there's a pushback. And sometimes that's not so bad because there's a pushback, there's a pushback the other way. And, you know, that's how you work out policy over time. Yeah, I guess I would just add and uh, that, I, I I actually think that that what's at play is the conversation around reimagining public safety, right? It is the defund movement and the questioning of who actually keeps us safe that led to the progressive prosecuting movement. And it really has been the largest challenge to the status quo in decades, maybe ever, because of how it spread like wildfire. And so I think we've seen massive pushback from the federal level on down. Um in the East Bay, uh, we have elected a couple of left-leaning folks, and there are immediately, there have been immediate calls uh, for their recall. 
Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about Pamela Price, the the newly elected Alameda County DA who went in and, you know, she's reopened uh, cases uh, of, of police murder. Um, she's pleading folks down. She's talking about diversion and, and the same folks, actually, that, that helped oust Chessa um, are, are now launching at least having very loud conversations about recalling Pamela Price. What, what, in what scenario um, could that play out not in her favor? Oh, so, well, the big challenge there is, is a one? recall. Oh, so there is, so uh, actually both, both parts, parts work actually pretty well. So the big challenge with the recall is getting on the ballot. And that we saw in uh, L.A. against George Gascon, where they managed to turn in 715,000 signatures, but enough were removed that it couldn't get on the ballot. It was still 520,000 that were validated, but that wasn't enough. Getting those signatures, even with money, it's a hard process. There's a lot of failures. There's a lot of signature verification problems. So that's the challenge. Now, the reason that a recall could be popular is that once it gets to the ballot, there's an excellent chance of success. Most elected officials win re-election. This is, you know, pretty straightforward, like 75, 85. It's not even clear. But throughout the country, most officials win re-election. But in a recall, most of the officials lose the recall vote. So in California, I've seen, you know, over the years, like 75%, when they get to the ballot, lose the vote. Nationwide, about 60%. Another 6% resign in the face of a recall. So the chance that something could happen is it's a challenge because you need, uh, I think about 75,000 signatures. And that's a lot. That is a lot of signatures. Um, but to get to that stage, once you get to that stage, then you're in for a, a serious fight. Uh, and you think about it, there's, it's a different type of election. So she was elected in a, uh, you know, using, she didn't gain a, a, an absolute majority in the, ver- the first round. So she has to do that in a recall. Uh, uh, you know, she the instant runoff is quite a bit different than the situation of just a yes or no vote. And we saw that with Chase Boudin, where he got 35% in the first round. And so comes the recall, he's losing. We saw that with Gray Davis. He got 47% in his election in 2002. So he was always already 3% behind on the recall vote. He needed to gain 3%, and he obviously could not do that at that time. Now, the other point of view, uh, what you were just asking, could there be advantages? Yes. In fact, winning a recall could be a career boost. It could really put you on the map. Think of Diane Feinstein. She faced a recall in 1983. She then went in 1984. She won it easily uh, when she was San Francisco mayor. 1984, they're talking about her for the vice president. She goes on to be the longest-serving longest U.S. senator in California history. Even losing a recall is not a death sentence. Lynn Frazier, the first governor to face a recall in North Dakota in 1921, lost. A year later, he was elected to the U.S. Senate. So both are, you know, th- there could be advantages to facing a recall. You're defending yourself. You're showing your power. You're showing voters app- approve of you. Joshua Spivak, you talk. You you were talking about that once it gets to the ballot, right? Things get a little 
dangerous. What role, because this is definitely something that came up in the conversation about Chessa, what role does low voter turnout play in successful recalls? Um, how, how, yeah, that, that's that's my question, because there's a lot of folks that will say that the left failed Chessa when it came to the ballot box. And had they done their job, he'd still be in office. Surprisingly, not as much as you would think. Um, so one thing I, I calculated was how many recalls took place on a general election day versus how many took place on a special election day. And I had thought going in that the people, that the recalls on special elections would be overwhelmingly uh, victorious and the general elections would be much closer. But no, actually, it was slightly – it was the other way, not totally. It was general election recalls were slightly more likely to remove the person than a special election recall. And we've seen this play out in California where Gray Davis's recall saw vastly higher turnout than – his election in 2002. And in many recalls that happens. I mean, in some they're, they're very low turnout, but usually those are blowouts anyway. So it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, but very frequently it is not about turnout, uh, except in the way that any election is about turnout. In the last section or last segment that we did on the show, I was, I was speaking to historian Catherine Olmsted and we talked about you know, uh, Governor Hiram Johnson and the the introduction of the recall to California and its intentions to remove, you know, uh, corrupt politicians uh, to to in, interrupt you know big business in the in the wealthy's stranglehold on on government and politics. And her feeling was that those folks would be horrified at the ways in which the recall is being utilized now. I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, I don't think they would be. They, um, they, so their goal was not this just about corruption, except in this broad sense of kick the, kick the Southern Pacific Railroad out of politics. That was, that was uh, in, when they put it in 1911. But when they, L.A. took it, it was a much more open-ended thing. Now, other states have a recall process with that limitation of it just should be about corruption. Uh, I call that a malfeasance standard. And those states rarely have recalls. Washington has it. They've had seven recalls in the last uh, 11 or 12 years. Uh, Oregon doesn't, and they've had over 110, uh, 120 maybe. Um, so that that's a law that's possible. But the recall law is written in a way that's very amorphous, very much about giving power to the people and letting people use this power how they want to. And sometimes that is for good and sometimes that's for ill. Um, But you're able to kick people out or it's effectively, let's do a rerun of that election. Let's, let's decide whether this person should stay in power because of their policy choices. And I think if you look back and obviously, you know, different people had different views depending on who you were talking to in the, in the government at the time, they weren't looking just for, Oh, you, you had to actually commit a crime. They were, they they meant in a broader sense, corruption, corruption uh, that would not have been illegal. What the Southern Pacific was doing was not illegal under California law. Uh, it may not even be illegal today, but it was still something that they wanted to remove, and that that involved a rather radical change, which included the initiative and referendum, and obviously the recall. Where do you think uh, 
recall reform will go or has the chance to to go uh, moving forward, or do you think we are are are, are going to stay where we're at? And there have been some changes, especially on the the very local level, where they removed the ability of the voters to choose the replacement and instead have it appointed. And that's something that they're pushing for on the state level. But I I don't know that it's going anywhere. I think the voters kind of like recalls. They like to have the option of of rethinking whether this person should be in office. I've seen every time it gets to the ballot a recall, it almost always succeeds. Voters want the power. Uh, So... How important is the recall is another question. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. It's a fairly minor procedure. It's not like the initiative, which is super powerful and kind of ignored when you think about how powerful the initiative is. Right? There have been very few recalls in California history on the state level. They haven't done too much. You know, think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Was that a major change? Did that help the Republicans? It did not. That has not been something that the Republicans should have done. Uh, so I think that it's it's sort of like, how much am I going to fight for this? Yeah, I guess I would just say, and I got to wrap it up, Joshua, that the recall sure. of Chesapeake replaced by Brooke Jenkins has done a lot to black and brown, poor, marginalized folks that are feeling the boot of law enforcement very heavy on their neck now. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back. Joshua Spivak is the author of Recall Elections from Alexander Hamilton to Gavin Newsom. Joshua tracks recall efforts globally on his blog, recallelections.blogspot.com. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.